It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 265 for October 23rd, 2011. Recorded October 21st. Last week, rather unexpectedly, the TechBiter Worldwide email came from MailChimp. That was unplanned, but I had been evaluating the MailChimp service since September. This week's update also comes from MailChimp, but that's an intentional change. If you need to communicate regularly with customers, prospects, or subscribers, you might want to consider MailChimp, too. And normally, I record the podcast and prepare the newsletter on Friday and schedule the newsletter for transmission at 4 a.m. on Saturday. One copy comes to me, not to inflate readership statistics, but so I'll know when the transmission occurred. Saturday is my day to sleep in, so I'm rarely up before 6, but last Saturday I really slept in, until 9. When I checked for email, I found no newsletter. Usually, that means I scheduled it for 4 p.m. instead of 4 a.m., but not this time. It was sitting in the scheduler with a message that it would be sent five hours in the past. So I deleted it and scheduled it again for immediate transmission. Then I started the scheduling process at MailChimp, just in case. When the newsletter was ready to go at MailChimp, I checked back with your mailing list provider, the service I've used for many years, and the message was still there. Again, deleting it from the queue, I returned to MailChimp and scheduled it for an immediate transmission. The service from MailChimp looks promising, and if you have a newsletter that you'd like to distribute regularly, I recommend you take a look at MailChimp. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Spam links. Somehow that sounds like a breakfast food. When I deconstruct spam links on the TechBiter Worldwide website, they're usually just standard phishing spams or links to Canadian pharmacies that want to sell me a generic Viagra. But this week I encountered an unusual link, one that's truly dangerous. I'd like to show you how it works. It started as what appeared to be a regular run-of-the-mill phishing exploit. The message told me that my ACH transaction had been cancelled by the other financial institution, unnamed of course. NACHA is a legitimate organization. It's a trade organization for companies that provide electronic payment services. But NACHA appears not ever to send messages on its members' behalf, and particularly not messages that say payments have been declined, canceled, or approved. The fact that the message was fraudulent was never in question. The message wanted to send me to a website, so I fired up the Windows PowerShell and downloaded the default page from the site. There's no danger involved here because nothing can be executed when I simply download the text into a file. Had I followed the link, the site would have appeared to be NACHA, and the browser banner would have said ACH transfer rejected. But then what? What I found was really interesting. You'll find a screenshot on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and you'll notice it looks like junk. And by junk, I mean you see strings of text like 50.5 asterisk t comma 64 slash t comma 61.5 star t. Those look like math, don't they? 
50.5 times t, 64 divided by t, 61.5 times t. They're all multiplication and division operations. So this is an attempt to obfuscate characters that would already be difficult to read. But what's t? Well, in the preamble of the file, I see that t equals 2. All right, well, then it's pretty easy to evaluate all those expressions. I broke the text at each comma and then pasted the functions into an Excel spreadsheet and evaluated them. Next, I used the Excel VLOOKUP function to match the resulting codes to the appropriate numbers and letters that the codes actually represent. They're just hex codes. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a little piece of the spreadsheet that I used to do that. It's a chart that shows all of the decimal, binary, octal, and hex equivalents. So the VLOOKUP table converted apparent junk to more or less readable text. It was a JavaScript script. The primary thing I was looking for was easy to find. I just wanted to know where this page was going to take me. Each character is on a new line, of course, in the Excel spreadsheet. It'd be much more readable if I would just copy the text to a text editor and replace the word tab with an actual tab character and the word space with space characters. Doing this turned the apparent junk into a JavaScript script that had a link to a new page. Aha! I started the same way with that page, and what I found there were hundreds of lines, 751 lines to be exact, of obfuscated JavaScript. Each of the two characters is a hex code, so 751 lines would come out to about 30,000 bytes of code. So what's going on here? Well, I didn't deconstruct this code but it's likely that it's an attempt to place malware on the computer. Because I keep my computer's security applications up to date, it's pretty unlikely the code would have damaged anything, but I am not going to take a chance. I have a general guideline that I follow, and I think it's a pretty good one for just about everybody. It's this. Never click any link in a message that refers to a financial transaction. If you believe that the message might be legitimate go to the organization's website by typing the link address into your browser. Don't click the link. You should take a look at Zoc, a friend said. It emulates just about every terminal you've ever heard of and works on both my Windows and Mac machines. Well, that was a pretty enticing prospect. So, I looked and I found that Zoc is a Telnet, SSH, and SSH2 client and a terminal emulator that has tabbed sessions, configurable scrollback, scripting, and more. A lot more. I can see why anybody who needs access to a Unix shell account, or just about any other type of larger system, would like it. It turns out that Zoc is the terminal emulator that does everything, everywhere. It offers Telnet, SSH, SSH2, and serial console capabilities. It provides an extraordinarily wide range of terminal emulations, and it runs on Windows and Mac computers. And if that's not enough, Zoc also includes X, Y, and Z modem file transfer protocols, as well as Kermit and SCP. You might be wondering, what's a terminal emulator? Fair question. At its most basic, a terminal emulator turns your smart desktop computer into a dumb terminal. Why would you want to do that? Well, at this point, maybe a little history is in order. In the land before PCs, computers were very expensive. 
They lived in special rooms, and, if you were lucky, you had on your desk a terminal that was connected to that mainframe or mini-computer. When PCs appeared, they often sat right beside terminals, and then somebody had the bright idea to write an application that made the PC look like a dumb terminal, so you could get part of your desk back. A dumb terminal is just that, a screen and a keyboard that can communicate with a larger computer, but has no built-in computing capability of its own. Mainframe and many computers still exist, and if you connect to one of those, you'll need a terminal emulator program. If you have a website, the hosting company probably provides Secure Shell Access, or SSH. You might not be using that capability, but if you have a website, you really should consider it. And if you do, the only terminal emulator to consider is Zoc. Most websites run on Unix or Linux computers, and SSH access provides capabilities that you can't obtain any other way. The resurgence of client-server computing, which is actually 30-year-old technology, has perhaps given terminal emulators appeal to a larger and more general market that includes home and small office home office users. Zoc is a favorite because it supports a huge range of terminal emulations. This includes the most popular emulations, such as those used by Digital Equipment Corporation, the VT-52, VT-100, VT-102, and VT-220 terminals, standard ANSI terminals, TTY terminals, and Linux consoles. Those are all pretty popular. But it also provides emulations for Xterm, the IBM TN3270, TN5250, Sun CDE, WISE 3050 and 60 models, ATT4010, and the full Televideo 900 series, and even QNX V4 terminals. If you don't know what those are, doesn't matter. It's just a very wide range, and what it means is that no matter what kind of system you're trying to connect to, Zuck probably has a terminal emulator that'll work. The tabbed sessions feature means that it's easy to have multiple sessions open to the same or different mainframes and mini computers using the same or different terminal emulations. Zoc maintains a history of typed commands and has a user configurable scrollback function that allows you to review text even after it's scrolled off the screen. You'll see an example on the TechBiter Worldwide website of a Linux terminal session. If you enlarge the image, you'll be able to read the text, but you probably won't be able to make much sense out of it. It's a TechBiter Worldwide log file, but the lines are so long that they wrap. With many SSH or Telnet clients, this is all you're going to see. There's no way to change it. But with Zoc, all you have to do is drag the window out so that it's wider. Now, I warn you, on the TechBiter Worldwide website, what you'll see here is unreadable, but that's because I had to shrink the image so much to get it to fit on the website. On your screen, it is highly readable, and the lines no longer break, so they make sense. When you have SSH access to your web server, you can communicate directly with the applications on the server. For example, a MySQL database. Zoc comes with a helpful and detailed help file that includes a Getting Started Start Here section that covers the basics. Most Telnet applications come with a scripting language that allows for automated logins as well as automated processes on the server. The Zoc language is called Rex. It has functions that watch for output from the server and can then respond to that output. And you can assign scripts to buttons that you can add to the application's interface. The help file is good, too, when it comes to answering much more complex questions. It's a very good help file. The bottom line for Zoc, five cats, 
Somehow Zach had escaped my attention for several years, but at last I found it, or at least was directed to it by a friend. I am always delighted when a program that's clearly superior to all the competitors shows up, because then I can write about it. Zoc is more expensive than applications such as Putty, which is free, but it's a lot less expensive than some other SSH clients that offer the user far fewer features. For more information, visit the Zoc website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. In short circuits, students in Munster, Indiana, will be seeing fewer books as the result of a change that puts computers in the hands and book bags of students starting in the fifth grade. The change isn't being welcomed by everyone, but it is the future. According to the New York Times, the school district paid $1.1 million to buy computers for the district's 2,600 students in grades 5 through 12 and the necessary infrastructure to support them. The students seem to be accepting the change easily, but it's reportedly left some of the teachers a bit stressed. And instead of the dog, it's now the server that gets blamed for any missing homework. The New York Times article quotes the head of the math department at Wilbur Wright Middle School, Pat Primitz. The material we're teaching is old, but everything around it is brand new. Primetz also said that while the change is overwhelming, it's also the most exciting thing to happen in her 40 years of teaching. School districts that transition to computers will still have to buy books for students, but the books will be electronic. In theory, the cost should be less because publishers won't need to pay for printing, storage, and shipping. And the school district will still need to store computers over the summer, but 2,600 computers will consume considerably less space than would be required for the four, five, or six books per student. In an increasingly connected world, a big flood in Thailand can create problems for computer manufacturers in the United States. About a third of all disk drives used in personal computers are manufactured in Thailand. The flood in August slowed production of drives there. Prices have increased. Manufacturers are having trouble obtaining sufficient supplies. Seagate, Western Digital, and Toshiba all have manufacturing facilities in Thailand. The floods have closed two Western Digital plants, and the company has tried to shift operations to a plant in Malaysia. Seagate's plants are still running, but there's a problem obtaining components for the drives. Like Western Digital, Toshiba has suspended operations in Thailand temporarily. The only larger manufacturer of disk drives is China. Fortunately, computer manufacturers have relatively high levels of stock on hand, so the situation isn't yet critical. But it is ominous. In Thailand, more than 300 people have died because of the floods, and more than 8 million have been forced from their homes. These days, it's a positive note for Yahoo when the company can report quarterly profits that aren't as bad as they were expected to be. The company seemed to be excited about the not-quite-as-bad-as-expected news, just as passengers on the Titanic were no doubt delighted to have a surplus of ice for their drinks. Yahoo's sales were $1.2 billion for the quarter that ended in September, but that dropped to slightly over $1 billion after payments to partner websites were deducted. Overall, sales declined about 5% from the same period last year, and profit declined more than 25%. But the company was able to report small per-share earnings, $0.23 cents per share. 
Yahoo has started a new partnership with ABC News, but the company's share of online advertising continues to drop, even as Google and Facebook see increases. Chief Financial Officer Tim Morse, who is also temporarily the CEO, said that he is optimistic but didn't want to talk about a permanent replacement for Carol Bartz, the second Yahoo CEO canned by Yahoo in the last 12 months. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.